Good morning. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Once said, it doesn't matter how slowly you run, so long as you don't stop. As many of us know, running the race as a follower of Christ can be difficult. There's always unexpected obstacles to overcome and unwanted pain to manage. It's easy to stop. But scripture reassures us that any obstacle or pain we face pales in comparison to what awaits us at the finish line. It's not about getting there first. It's about running with purpose and with peace. The end of Hebrews tells us how to do that, how to keep on running life's amazing race to victory. We are in a series on the last part of the letter or the book, or really, more specifically, the sermon of Hebrews. We're looking at chapters 10 through 13. For the first part of Hebrews, the writer is saying Jesus is superior. He is better than anything else in the world, any other place that you could go to find meaning and purpose and salvation. Jesus is better. And then at the end, as he talks to these first century Jewish Christians, he tells them, because Jesus is better, stay with Jesus. Keep running the race. Don't give up. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't let this world press in on you so much that you give up. And so the end of Hebrews is really meant to be encouragement, not just for those first century Jewish Christians, but for us today, who are also running the race with the world trying to press in on us. Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, that famous chapter, that Faith Hall of Fame. If you have a Bible, you might open it up to Hebrews chapter 11. It's helpful to see it right in front of you. A lot of the verses will be on the screen, but you may want your own text in front of you. Hebrews 11. I recently read a very fascinating book. I want to tell you about it. <clears throat> it's a book called Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nayuri. And I didn't know when I heard about this book, this book, by the way, that has won all kinds of awards, I didn't know when I heard about it, the local connection. You see, the writer of this book, this autobiography, this story, this true story, he is obviously an adult now, but he writes this story, his story and the story of his family, as his younger self. He writes it as an elementary school student. And where do you think he went to elementary school? In Edmond, Oklahoma. In fact, he went to elementary school just a few yards up the street at Will Rogers Elementary School. Some of you may even know Daniel. I, I don't know. I, I didn't know him or know of him. He's a terrific writer, very engaging and, and funny, and very funny at times in this, in this book. So when he was very young, I think at the age of seven, his mother took him and his sister and left Iran. And she fled her home country to find asylum somewhere else. She left with her two children for one simple reason, because she fell in love with Jesus. That's why she left. And she literally escaped being killed for her faith. She literally escaped being killed because she gave up the Muslim religion. 
Her husband wouldn't go with her. He said, I'm not going. So she left her husband, she left her family, she left her home, her friends, her community. She left a thriving medical practice. She was a physician in Iran. And she left all of that to seek asylum. After a few stops along the way in some other countries and refugee camps, she ended up in all and of all places right here in Edmond, Oklahoma. Daniel was just eight years old at that point. Like I said, she was a physician, she was a doctor, but once she got here, she couldn't practice medicine, and so she took odd jobs to support her family, her children. She did whatever she had to do. Of course, she lost prestige, she lost income because of that. But she did it because she loved Jesus, and she loved her children. And so the book is Daniel telling this story, telling his story and his family's story explaining what it was like to be a refugee in a foreign land, explaining what it's like to be an immigrant, to be a stranger. And you can imagine, this happened during the 1990s, you can imagine the challenges that would probably come his way as a Persian kid from Iran in the middle of Edmond, Oklahoma in the 1990s. You could imagine some challenges, couldn't you? (laughs) This, This is not necessarily a book about theology per se, And I don't know or pretend to know or necessarily endorse all the different aspects of faith represented by the author. But it is a heartwarming and incredibly insightful and often funny story that shows you what one person, what one family, what they will do because of their faith, because they're serious about Jesus It is a story about love and struggle, about faith and family, and it is a story about a mom that, in Daniel's words, is unstoppable. I recommend this book, especially for parents to read with their children or maybe listen to together. But I'm not here to do a book review. That's not what what this is about. I'm telling you this for a couple of reasons. I'm telling you about this book because, first of all, I think a story like this builds empathy in us. And, And... These days, we need more empathy. We need to see what it's like to be the other. We need to see what it's like not to be in the in crowd, in the in group, to be those who belong. We need to develop a heart, the heart of Jesus, that sees people and meets them where they are. And so a story like this, if it can develop empathy in us, I think that's a good thing. But there's another reason I'm telling you about this book. Because to me, Daniel's story is a life-giving portal into the mindset of what it means to live as a stranger, to live as an immigrant, to live as a refugee. He gives us insight into what that really looks like. And some of you already know that firsthand. There's lots of quotes and parts of the book that I like, but here's one quote that I really locked in on, and here it is. A patchwork story is the shame of a refugee. A patchwork story is the shame of a refugee. I had to really ponder that. I had to think on that for a while to truly grasp what it was he was saying. And here's, I think, what he was saying. He uses this word patchwork because for everyone else, virtually everyone else, everyone who belongs, for everyone else who is, you might say, a native, for everyone else in the in crowd, in the in group, their stories make sense. Now, there may be ups and downs in the story, but it's more linear. It's more comprehensive, more connected. Many people who belong, they know their 
parents and the generation before them and then maybe even the generation before them and they spend time with their family and their friends and they they hear the stories and they tell the stories and and it makes sense but for a refugee there's been a major disruption in the story hasn't there everything has been turned upside down it's not linear it's a patchwork to use his word There's been a disruption and now all of a sudden you're in a new place with new people and new customs and new laws and new languages and cultural norms and of course, new food. He spends a lot of time talking about food. Maybe that's why I like the book. He says as a fifth grader, here's what he discovered about food. Here's what he said. Here's a list of foods we discovered in America. Peanut butter, marshmallows, barbecue sauce. You can say, can I have barbecue to a kid's mom at potlucks? And they'll know exactly what you mean. Puppy chow. Czech cereal covered in melted chocolate and peanut butter and tossed in powdered sugar. Frito pie. Not a pie. Chili on top of corn chips with cheese and sour cream. Not sour. (laughs) S'mores. They say it super fast like s'mores. Banana pudding. They don't say the G. Sometimes they don't even say the B. (laughs) Remember, he was in Oklahoma. Nana pudding, right? He goes on to say, here's a list of the foods from Iran that they have never heard of. All of it. (laughs) All the food. He says, Jared Rhodes didn't even know what a date was. (laughs) I knew some guys in college who had no idea what a date was, but that's a different kind of date. His story demonstrates, I think, in a very clear and insightful way how out of place immigrants feel sometimes. Not only do they feel like they maybe they don't belong, but they've lost connection to their loved ones, to their home. They've lost connection to their stories, and they're left to find a new story, to be a part of a new story. Why do I tell you all of that? Because here's the truth. As followers of Jesus, we are immigrants. We are foreigners. We need to accept that reality. We need to more than accept that reality, we need to embrace that identity. We are foreigners and strangers. We don't belong here. This isn't our true home. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, I I did this fairly quickly. I looked at, at many of the translations in the New Testament at some of the words that are used to describe our role as followers of Jesus who, yes, live in this world, but we aren't of this world. Look at this list, and this is probably not exhaustive, but exile, stranger, foreigner, alien, sojourner, pilgrim, temporary resident, visitor, and immigrant. See, that's who we are. And and sometimes, let's be honest for a moment here, sometimes those words They sort of go against the grain of our identity, our perspective. And and yet the Bible says, wait a second, that's, that's you. That's who you are. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, then according to the New Testament, you are a foreigner, a stranger, an exile. And it doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter what flag you wave. It doesn't matter what pledge you recite. You are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. Or as our text today says, you are looking forward to a better country. 
You see, that's our identity. We are foreigners and strangers. Our stories are a patchwork. God has disrupted our comfortable and linear lives, and he's called us out, out of this world to live as foreigners and strangers and exiles. He wants us to discover a new story, a story that he is writing. Embracing our identity as foreigners and strangers, it's not just descriptive. It's not just like we read, okay, that's who I am. It is prescriptive, which means it means something for us. There are some implications of having that mindset, of having that perspective in this world. And that's what this section of Hebrews, to me, is all about. Yes, it is about faith, and that is the foundation for our identity as foreigners and strangers, as we will see. And so let's start in verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. The writer of Hebrews continues his thought from the end of chapter 10. If you're here last week or if you've read that recently, you know he says at the very end, we are not the people who shrink back and are destroyed, but we belong to the people, the people of God, who live by faith and are saved. Already you see a difference there. When you belong to the world, you will shrink back when life gets difficult, when God demands something of you. You will buy into the values of the world and say, I can't do this anymore. And he says, that's not who we are. We live by faith. Well, what's faith? Well, he just told us in verse one, faith is the confidence, the assuredness of what we hope for and being certain of what we do not see. Well, how can you be certain about something you can't see? That doesn't make sense, right? When you put human logic, when you put worldly wisdom on that equation, it doesn't add up. How can I be certain of something that I can't experience personally? I can't see with my own eyes. Do you believe God is with us this morning? Probably most of us would say yes. How do you know God is with us? Can you, can you see him? Do you see, look around, do you see God? Well, I can't, I can't see him with my eyes but I know he's here because he says he's here. I know he's here because he is all-powerful and all-present, so he is everywhere. And what you're saying is you see God through a different set of eyes, right? You see God through the eyes of faith. You see beyond the tangible, beyond the immediate. You see above and beyond that through the eyes of faith. That's what he says faith is. Confidence in what we hope for. And what we hope for are the things that God has promised. And so we are certain about who God is and what he has promised, even though we cannot always see it. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, everything around us, it will not last, but what is unseen is eternal. And then just a few verses later in chapter 5, chapter 5 verse 7, he says, for we live by faith not by sight we live by faith does that phrase sound familiar that's the phrase we are going to see over and over in our text today in Hebrews chapter 11 these men and women of faith who lived and died by faith you see living by faith is what sets people apart those who take discipleship serious from those who do not those who embrace the call of God on their lives, those who allow him to shape their identity. 
by faith will be the common thread woven throughout this patchwork, to use Daniel's word, this patchwork of a story of men and women that we know from our Bibles, people whose lives were disrupted by God and his call on them. So let's look at what he says about these men and women. Verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. They were commended for their faith. For example, verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So already he says, we have faith, we participate in this faith because we believe that God formed this universe not by something that pre-existed, but by his word. He goes on, verse 4, by faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The writer goes on to list others. He says, by faith, Noah built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abram or Abraham left home at God's command and became the father of many nations. The men and women cataloged in Hebrews chapter 11 did what they did because of faith whether it was offering a pleasing sacrifice to God or living a life of sacrifice that pleased God, whether it was building a boat or leaving home, whether it was getting on board with having a child when having a child seemed way out of the realm of possibility. They did what they did because of their faith. It was a genuine faith that compelled them to subvert culture, to sacrifice desires, and to see beyond the here and now to the eternal. You see, that's what faith is. And so these people we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, they stood out because they were called out. Does that make sense? They stood out. We, we recognize them. They are listed here because they were called out from the world. Not to just fall into the pattern of the world and do what everyone else does. No, God called them out to live a life of faithfulness, to be commissioned by God, to make much of God's kingdom, to do specific things that he called them to do, to live and to die by faith. The writer decides to camp out a little bit with Abraham and tell us more about him. He and Sarah, again, they left home at God's command. And they maintain this mindset, this mindset that all followers of Jesus, that all people who try to please God, all people who try to live by faith should have. The mindset of a foreigner. Back in the text, verse 9. By faith, Abraham, he, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, 
came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and countless as the sand on the seashore. If you remember the call narrative of Abraham, God said, I want you to leave home. Okay, God, where am I going? I will tell you on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know yet. Okay, God, can you just give me a map? No. God said, leave home. He didn't tell him where he was going. He didn't give him a map, and Abraham and Sarah left. That takes great faith, doesn't it? It takes great faith to leave the familiar, to leave home, to leave what is the primary source of your identity and purpose in life. It takes great faith to leave all of that behind. It takes great faith to leave your homeland because you love Jesus. It takes great faith to go into a new place, a foreign land. Did you see in verse 9? They were like a stranger in a foreign country, living in tents. One scholar has said that God's people of old are characterized by two symbols, an altar and a tent. The altar relates to one's relationship with God. It's the place where you encounter God, the place where you worship, the place where you make sacrifices to God. The tent symbolizes one's relationship to the earth. It is a powerful testimony that says, I am not here long, I'm just passing through This isn't our final destination. Abraham was literally a man without a country. As God extracted him from his homeland and changed his identity to become a nomad. But this wasn't just the case for Abram and Sarah. This was the case for every man and woman listed in this great faith hall of fame, if you will. But not just for them, it is our identity as well. As we continue in verse 13, all these people, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Did you see the words used there? They were foreigners and strangers, people who understood and embraced their identity as temporary residents. They got it. They understood. They knew that they shouldn't get too comfortable here They shouldn't drive their tent stakes too deeply into the earth because they were on the move. People who live by faith, they know they're foreigners. They accept and embrace their role as strangers. But what does that mean in practical terms? What does that look like? It means we loosen our grip on the world and we look and long for something better. Better. That word is used throughout Hebrews something better. Look at verse 15. If they had been thinking about this, the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to go back. I think it's interesting that he includes that detail. If they would have been thinking about home, they they would have made a way back home. But they weren't, and they didn't. They weren't focused on what was behind. They weren't focused on what was right there. They were focused on where they were going. 
Do you ever feel like you're hanging on to the things of this world a bit too tightly? Do you ever get that sense that if you're honest with yourself, you look and you have a white-knuckled grip on some of the things of this world? It's hard to loosen your grip, isn't it? It's hard to have that perspective on stuff, possessions and jobs and careers and money and all of those things. Well, how do I know if, if I have too, too tight a grip on the things of this world? Well, I, I think there's probably several indicators. But one, I think, is that those things, the things of this world, begin to occupy your mind in such a way that it crowds out spiritual thoughts. What do you think about most often? What do you dwell on? Where's your go-to place to think about the things that are happening in your life? What percentage of your day do you think about spiritual things, scripture, spiritual truth, what God is doing in this world and around you, who Jesus is, how you can share your faith? Maybe that's one indicator. But I think for many of us, the major indicator of whether we have a too tight uh, or holding too tightly to the things of this world is because we allow the things of this world to bring us our identity and our hope and our joy and our sense of purpose. We draw all of, the, all of those things from the things of this world. In other words, if I say my citizenship is in heaven, but the truth is I really let my job determine who I am and to define who I am, then maybe I need to, to, to look at that or, or what I own or how much money I have or my social standing either in real life or in fake life on social media, you know, how many followers I have or who likes me in real life and in fake life. When I allow those things to define me and I want those things to define me, then we need to take a very close look at that. I think we're just, it's just sort of our nature. I mean, when you meet someone for the first time, what's one of the questions you always ask? It is the go-to question we ask, hey, what do you do? What do you do? And it's a great icebreaker question. Well, I'm a student. Well, I, I teach school. Well, I'm a plumber. Well, I'm an accountant. That's great. But sometimes we allow ourselves to be defined by what we do. You want to freak someone out? Sometimes ask them, not, hey, what do you do? But hey, who did God make you to be? <laughs> Whoa, wait, what? Not prepared for that question. I don't even know the answer to that question. Do you ever find yourself holding on too tightly to the things of this world? Things that, that you allow to bring you the greatest joy. Things that you allow to shape who you are, your identity. Things that you allow to define your purpose in this life. It's so easy to get caught up. It's so easy to get caught up in our surroundings, good or bad. When bad things are happening, we allow that sometimes to take over our thinking and our identity as well. It's so easy to allow the world to press in on us. Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, that, that well-known verse, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold. Don't be so distracted by the things of this world but be transformed, be changed. How? By the renewing of your mind, by thinking differently, by seeing differently, by seeing through the eyes of faith, by being sure of what we hope for, 
of certain of what we do not see. You see, foreigners and strangers, they live by faith, not by sight. And it's so much harder to get distracted by the things of this world when our eyes are focused on the eternal. But these people we read about in this text, they didn't just look forward to eternity. What does the text say? They longed for it. That's a great word, isn't it? They longed for it. Verse 16, they longed for a better country, a heavenly one. Do you understand what a longing is? I'm sure you've longed for something before. You've longed to, to meet someone or to, to get married someday. You've longed for your situation to improve. You've longed for your prayers to be answered. You've longed to, to be healed from this disease or this sickness. You understand what longing is. It's something inside you that pushes you, that pulls you, that compels you, that gets you to look at something beyond your circumstances because you know there's something better. You long for a heavenly home. Do you ever find yourself longing for something better than this world? Do you ever look around and see the darkness and wish for light? Do you ever look around and witness the oppression and the injustice, the things that don't make sense? You see the evil and it makes you long for something better. You ever lose someone close to you and all of a sudden heaven becomes a little bit closer, a little bit more real and you long for heaven. You see, that's what foreigners and strangers do. They loosen their grip on the world. They long for something better. As John declares in his revelation of Christ, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain in Revelation 21. For the old order of things has passed away. You see, that's what we long for. Something so much better. Real faith produces a life of anticipation, of longing. And so here's the conclusion. Here is not home. You can remember that, can't you? Here is not home. We live looking and longing for something better. Here is not home. Many of you have been on trips, family trips probably. Maybe when you were a child, you experienced this, but maybe if you're a parent or a grandparent, you've experienced this. I know as a youth minister, they have experienced this. And that is the family trip where you hear that one question. That one question, usually uttered from the back seat, usually early and often, especially on those long trips. You know that question. What's the question? Are we there yet? Right? Yeah, y'all ask it. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Kids ask that today. I can't believe it because now they have so much stuff, right? When I was a kid, it was, you know, it's one of those well, back in my day. Well, it's true. Back in my day, we couldn't watch a movie in our hand on a little device. The only movie we saw was, hey, look out the window and see cows going by and trees going by. And, you know, that's a, it's a moving picture, I guess. That, that was it. And then when I, I remember when I got a little older, we got the Sony Walkman. Anybody have a Sony Walkman? Yeah. The big headphones. You had to take all these batteries and all your cassettes. Oh, yeah. But we asked that question back then. Kids still ask it today. Are we there yet? I heard about one mom whose son was asking that question on a trip, and she finally said, listen, I'll make you a deal. 
If you don't ask that question anymore, when we get there, I'll give you $10. He's like, yeah, okay. She said, but wait a second. Here's the other part of the deal. If you do ask that question, every time you ask it, you have to give me a dollar. He said, that's a deal. I'll do it. Well, she says, by the time they got there, her son owed her $276. (laughs) Are we there yet? Imagine if we lived our lives as followers of Jesus with that type of anticipation, with that type of, of expectation of what is to come with that sense of longing that says, yeah, we we have to live here and we're gonna make the best of it while we're here and we're gonna make much of Christ while we're here and we're gonna try to witness to him and and witness of him to people and we're gonna make much of his kingdom and spread the word and shine the light. Yes, we're gonna do all that and we're going to honor him by how we work and we're going to love our family and we're gonna love our neighbor. Yes, we're gonna do all of those things, but this isn't it. This isn't home. We long for something else. God, are we there yet? Look around. We're not there. This is not it. To say the least, there's so much brokenness here, so much injustice here, so much darkness here. This is not it. We aren't there yet. But one day, one day we will. One day we will be there. And we look forward to that day. And we long for that day. But until then, we will live, and we will live by faith. Looking beyond our circumstances, looking beyond this world to the eternal. Because that's what faith does. That's what faith is. Will you live by faith? God will help you do it. He gives you a spirit to live in you, to work in you, to help you, to comfort you, to lead you. He gives you his word to guide you. He instills within you peace and hope and purpose and salvation. You have every reason to live by faith. So just do it. Keep running the race. If we can help you this morning, let us do that. Let us encourage you and pray for you. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a little room right back here. You can exit out any of these doors and go see them. They'll encourage you and pray for you. They'd love to see you. Or you can come down to the front. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ to say, I want to live by faith. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Now I'm going to surrender my life to him, be baptized into Christ. We can help you do that today. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.